0: Today I would like to talk about the disciple in Genesis chapter 3 the curse of Genesis Genesis chapter 3 I'm going to have to use my notes quite a bit because this is coming out of a, a new book that I've just written it's the uh, last appendix in the book uh, the book hasn't been published yet but it's ready to go to the publisher and the last appendix uh in this book that is entitled Getting Back to Discipleship, The Greatest Need Among American Churches. As I've said, the very last section of the book deals with the disciple and the curse of Genesis 3. And that's what I'd like to share with you today out of that book. Rebellion toward God has always resulted in a lot of pain for the human family. And it began in a garden, a garden of paradise, when the first pair came fresh from God's creative hand. You know that God placed two trees in that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God told that couple, you can eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, Genesis chapter two. And verse 17, we know the story. The man and the woman disobeyed God. They were tempted. They gave in to the temptation, partook of the fruit of the tree. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it wasn't simply a matter of breaking divine law. It was unfaithfulness to their creator. It was treachery, meaning a betrayal, of course, of trust. The holy God of the universe responded by manifesting his judicial anger in the form of a curse, a curse that is redemptive in nature. We read about that curse in Genesis chapter 3. God introduced at that time pain and suffering into the world for the very first time. Because he placed a curse on the earth. He placed the the entire earth under bondage to corruption, drove Adam and Eve from the garden, and consequently from the tree of life. And what resulted in that was that death passed upon all mankind. As long as Adam and Eve were in the garden and had access to the tree of life, they were immortal. But once they were driven from the garden, they were no longer immortal. Immortality can only be given to us by God's grace as a gift. Paul words it this way in Romans twelve and verse, Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, that's physical death, And thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. It wasn't that Adam's sin was transferred to the human family. Not at all. No, the human family came along and followed the way of Adam. We came along in practice and we continue to fall into the same thing today and that is following the way of Adam. We sin, And because of that sin, Death passed upon all mankind. And that would be physical death. By choice, death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's in Romans 5. And when you study the book of Romans, uh, you look at Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, and it follows the same theme, a pattern, of how God is reversing that curse of physical death. And he, of course, is reversing it through Jesus. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh of death? He said, I thank God that it's through Jesus Christ my Lord. And even the curse that was placed on the cosmos, this earth on which we live, <coughs> is being reversed by Jesus Christ. And that's our hope. So death and everything that leads to death, such as sickness and disease, Wars, natural calamities, random accidents, and other circumstances came upon the human family at the time of that curse of Genesis 3. And that explains why we suffer so much in this world. Now, I don't claim to be able to give an answer to all the suffering, but here is at least part of the answer, and that is it goes back all the way to the garden when God placed this curse upon the human family, because that curse involved physical death and everything that leads to physical death. Sickness and disease, sorrow, death, and decay. We need to keep in mind, however, that this curse is redemptive in nature, and it points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. God uses all these things for his redemptive purposes. Purposes that we really seldom are able to grasp and understand. It's not just a matter of bad luck that people suffer. It's not just a matter of the devil's work. It's not just punishment for personal sins or persecution because of an unbelieving world that causes suffering. Most of the suffering in the world comes as a result of God's judgments instituted as a part of God's ongoing curse. And I believe that's what Paul had reference to in Romans 1.18 when he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth in their unrighteousness. So that curse that was introduced All the judgments that come after that on the human family is simply that ongoing curse that he put into operation. When God's judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the land learn righteousness. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, plural, past finding out. His judgments coming continually on mankind to warn us and to turn us back to Him. In Luke 13.3, Jesus said, "'Except you repent, you shall likewise perish.'" Have you ever considered the context in which He stated it? He stated it in a context where some Galileans had shed their blood under Pilate. And Jesus said, "'Do you think they were the only Galileans who were sinners?' And in that same context, he said, the tower of Salome that fell on those 18 people and killed them, do you think they were the only sinners in Jerusalem? That's the tower of Siloam south of Jerusalem. 18 people were killed by a tower that fell and took their life. And Jesus said, do you think they were the only sinners in Jerusalem? Nay, I tell you, except you repent, you will likewise perish. God's judgments come in in many forms, both on the guilty and the innocent. At the same time, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods. I recall two other towers that fell about 23 years ago and took the lives of over 3,000 people. You remember that quite well. And the thing that we need to grasp and get a hold of is the fact that when when that kind of judgment from God comes upon the human family, the innocent suffer right along with the guilty. But it's a warning. Not just to a city, not just to a particular community, not just to a state. It's a warning to an entire nation. It's a warning for an entire nation. You need to repent or else you too will perish. That's precisely what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, 3. God's wrath is ongoing and it's expressed in judgments, plural. That's a part of a curse that had its initiation a long time ago at the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It comes as a result of of that curse. Again, falling upon both the innocent and the guilty. Even Jesus Christ lived under the curse. Was he innocent? He said, which of you convicted me of sin? And the answer just echoed the question. He was sinless, the Lamb, the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet he placed himself under that curse. And it was that very curse that drove him to the cross, the sinfulness of mankind. I need to explain the difference between innocent and guilty. Jesus is the only innocent person who ever lived, and we know that. The rest of us are sinners. There's really only one group in the world, that's the guilty. Because all have sinned, failed, and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God, because of the grace of God and the death of Jesus on the cross and the blood that He shed, When I come into contact with that blood and my sins are cleansed, then God declares me innocent. He declares you innocent because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Oh, in essence, we're guilty, but that's not the way God views us and that's not the way He declares us. But when when God's judgments come on the earth, such as a tornado, and it goes through the countryside, natural calamity, A part of the curse. Does God go through choosing this one and then this one and this one and leaving out some? Not at all. It comes as a punishment. It comes as a warning. It comes as a judgment. But the innocent suffer with the guilty. There's a difference between judge and just suffering. There's a difference between being punished and just suffering. We we don't need to back away from this. This this is all over the Bible. It's all over the Scripture. From Genesis all the way through Revelation. God Almighty is in control. And, And things don't just happen randomly by accident. God is in control of everything. But all of these things are serving His redemptive purpose, to save the human family. Christian people who suffer innocently today under the curse are suffering because of the sins of the world and for the redemption of the world. That's something we need to think about. Why do we suffer? Most of the suffering comes because of of the curse therefore we suffer because of the sins of the world if man had never sinned and doesn't sin we wouldn't have all the sickness and disease and death and decay and things that go on (coughs) little children uh, in Coaster Hospital, San Jude Hospital little children are they innocent? This little child over here is that little child innocent? Absolutely. But why do children end up in San Jude or Cosaire? They end up there because of the sins of the world. If it was not for the sins of the world, there would not be suffering and sickness and disease in our world. And not only are those little children suffering because of the sins of the world, they're suffering for the redemption of the world. And when you and I suffer, we suffer for the redemption of the world. Jesus suffered for the redemption of the world. And it all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. And it's not always necessarily because of personal sins. What's the first thing people think about if they're really under pressure and things, everything just starts going wrong? What have I, do, what have I done wrong? What sin do I have in my life? To, to Isn't that what some people said about the man in John 9 who was born blind? Whose sin? Did this man sin or his parents? Jesus said neither one. Neither one. Now it goes back to what we're talking about here. You can, you can suffer in the midst of your innocence because of what we're talking about right here. In the meantime, we need to remember that God is eager enough to subject us to pain in order to purge us. He's eager enough to put us to grief in order to open our eyes. And He's eager enough to burn into our hearts the fact that we are not a self-sufficient people. We are dependent and relied, relied upon Him for everything. So God's method of saving people is often radical in nature. If, if you think about paramedic medics out on the interstate who show up at a bad car accident, they sometimes have to take radical measures to save people. They may have to cut off a limb, remove a limb, or puncture a blood-filled lung someone has said that god the divine paramedic is out to save the moral wreck of the universe and sometimes god takes radical measures to save the human family and it involves unpleasant things he's at work chastening the human family to draw us back to him And these are some of the circumstances of life of which we're mentioning that cause us to scratch our heads and say, How could God, a loving God, be involved in this? What father is he who loves his son who will not chasten his son? And we need to remember that. We do know that God is not loveless in the midst of his judgments. He's He's never loveless, he's never vindictive. It's never a matter of retribution. It's an expression of, it's another expression of his love. There's one thing we can know. God is not a war criminal. He is no Stalin, he's no Hitler, he's, he's no bin Laden or Vladimir Putin. Not, but neither is he a daughter and grandfather with whom anything goes. God will not tolerate evil forever. And we've got some stupid, insane things going on in our nation today that if we don't wake up, we are in for an awakening that God's going to give us. There's a dark line in the face of God and He will not tolerate evil forever. But remember when judgment's Come the innocent suffer rather life of the guilty. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, second Peter three nine. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. So, what does all of this have to do with the daily life of the disciple? Well, it has everything to do with how we understand our own suffering and how we understand and relate to the suffering of others. It, it has a lot to do with how we handle our own suffering. We learn how to handle suffering by considering how Jesus handled suffering and how did he handle it, his own as well as the suffering of others. We said that he placed himself under the same curse, and he did. And he was willing to go through that suffering for the redemption of the world. And we are to be willing to suffer for the same reason. Thank God he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's true that Jesus suffered as a result of persecution. Think of how he was persecuted mentally, emotionally, and physically. And how he suffered because of that, the way he was treated. But he also suffered because other people were suffering. When he saw people sick and diseased, what effect did it have on him? It moved him deeply with compassion and lament. He suffered because of the suffering of others. You see, he not only bore our sins on the cross, the Bible says that he bore our diseases and our sicknesses. That goes back to Isaiah chapter 53. Matthew 8, 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, he cast out the spirits of the word, healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, does that mean that the sicknesses of people in Jesus' day were literally transferred to his body? No, not any more than sins were literally transferred to him. It simply means that he shared in their sicknesses and their diseases. He bore our diseases through compassion and mercy. He shared the heartache. He shared the pain that comes from all of that. Many times in the New Testament we read uh, about the con- compassion of Christ that he groaned, he lamented and he wept the passage in in John 11 where it says Jesus wept it was at the grave of Lazarus, and so all of this moved him and God has always been that way even in the wilderness when the Israelites were being carried to the promised land and many of them fell because of sin they were still sinful people falling into idolatry. And yet God didn't abandon them. He went with them. He tabernacled with them. That's what the tabernacle stood for. And that's the presence of God. So God does not abandon His people. He chastens. But He still went with them. What about us today? Are we to have the heart and the spirit of Jesus? That means we too should share in the sicknesses and the sorrows of others. What does Paul say in Romans 12, 15? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That does not mean that the whole of life is a matter of weeping and a matter of suffering. The same verse that says weep with those who weep states rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm grateful we have a lot to rejoice about, but we also have a lot to weep about, don't we? We need to remember that we Christians, for Christ's sake, share the suffering of the human family They are acting as the body of Christ and bearing about in their bodies the redemptive death of our Lord Jesus. And we're doing our part in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. So when the occasion arises, are we to mourn with those who mourn? The Bible says that, doesn't it? Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they who who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are they who have compassion. Now, I realize that some people are gifted at showing mercy more than others. Would you agree with that? There's some people maybe from the church you don't want going to nursing homes. It wasn't long ago I told my mechanic I've got a new pacemaker. He said, oh. He said, I know a fellow that had that done about three months ago and he died. <laughs> so you, you, there are some people who just aren't gifted in showing mercy. But it's something we need to work in, is It's something we really need to to develop and that's the heart and spirit of Christ. Because we live in a culture of pleasure madness. We live in a culture of seeking amusement, entertainment, and party life, and thrill-seeking. And so our culture avoids and sometimes even denies mourning, sorrow, and pain. There are some people who will just back away from it, isolate themselves, and they lose their feelings and their sensitivity for what's going on in the life of another human being. And we don't want to be like that because that's not being Christ like. It's selfishness. It's selfishness when we don't have any feelings whatsoever for other people who are hurting. Now, I've known some people who have the attitude well, you need to just suck it up. Was that the attitude of Jesus? The Apostle Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the Israelites. He said, I have unceasing anguish, sorrow and pain, because the bulk of, the, of his br- Jewish brethren continued to reject the Messiah, continued to reject salvation, and that cut him deeply to the heart. And you and I have family members who will will not accept the Christ, don't we? Cuts us right here to the heart. And that's what we're talking about. We are to bear one of those burdens. How much do we lament? How much do we groan over the condition of our world today? The term lament simply means a passionate expression of great sorrow. And the term groan means to make a deep, inarticulate sound in response to pain and despair in the lives of others. In Romans chapter 8, Paul makes reference to groaning on three occasions. In Romans 8, he states that the earth, the cosmos, the creation, groans like a mother in childbirth. Like a mother giving birth to a child, our creation groans, waiting to be delivered with the children of God. You see, the earth is personified in that text. The creation is personified in that text. And it stated that the cosmos earns not to be destroyed, but to be delivered. And to be delivered with the children of God from the bondage and the curse of Genesis 3. What did God do to the earth in Genesis 3? placed it under a curse, a curse of emptiness and corruption. There is a yearning and a groaning of the entire creation to be delivered from that and to be renewed and restored as it was in the Garden of Eden. And then in that same text, in Romans 8 and verse 23, we too, as children of God, we grow waiting for the redemption of this body. Why? The redemption of this body. Because this body is is dying and decaying. And if you don't believe that, just look in the mirror. Have you looked in the mirror recently? See any changes? And one of these days, we're going to the grave, and this body will decay because it's mortal. But thanks be to God through Christ, this body will be raised immortal and incorruptible. We groan for that and yearn for that, the Bible says, along with the earth and the cosmos, doing the same yearning to be delivered, not destroyed, delivered and renewed a new creation, a new body, a new earth, a new heavens, and a new earth. And that's our hope. In that same text, in Romans eight twenty-six, the Holy Spirit groans. And we groan in prayer, trying to pray, and really it's nothing more than a grunt and a groan. The Holy Spirit groans with us and makes intercession for us and prays for us. That's what Paul said. It needs to be stated again that our lament is not just for ourselves, but for a world under a redemptive curse that brings suffering and death to the human family, and we long for something better. We long for a heaven and an earth that will be united. Jesus said, Pray in this manner, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is God's will? Renewal and redemption for the human family. And he's bringing it to pass, little at a time, it's all being reversed. Paul said in Romans 8:16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we might also be glorified with Him. For I reckon the sufferings of this present season is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Well, what is that Glory. Reigning with God and Christ in the new creation. That's what the Hebrew writer said. It's not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. No, the world to come, He subjected it to you and to me. We are going to reign. And that's glory that Paul talks about here. But it's only going to come to pass if we're willing to suffer with Him, that we might be glorified with Him. Just read Hebrews 2 and you'll find the same language. It's really the language of the new Exodus. The Jews in Jesus' day believed that everything in the Old Testament would be reenacted under the Messiah, especially the Exodus, as God brought Israel out of bondage, the bondage of slavery in Egypt took them through the water, baptized them Moses, 1 Corinthians 10, gave them the law of Mount Sinai, went through the wilderness of suffering, but where were they headed? Toward the promised land. You and I, under the Messiah today, are experiencing a new exodus, Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8. Bondage of sin, enslaved to sin, being delivered by our Lord Christ, passing through the waters of baptism, given the law of Christ. We're in the wilderness, and this God-forsaken land that we sometimes call God-forsaken, but it's not. And we suffer in the wilderness, but where are we headed? We're headed in the promised land. Paul said that it's not through the law Not through the law that God promised Abraham and his offspring that they would be heirs of the world, but it's through the righteousness of faith. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Micah, can I wrap this up right here? I didn't even know if I was supposed to go five more minutes or not. Any comments you'd like to make? I, I may have raised some questions, and if you have anything on your heart that you want to share with us. Again, this little book that I've written is called Getting Back to Discipleship, and it covers just about everything relating to discipleship. And that's just one little section of it. And the reason I put it in the book is because these things sometimes become a hindrance to our being a light to the world. And the more we understand the suffering of the world, the better we're going to be able to handle it and not be affected by it. Hope you've enjoyed our study.